0: Welcome to Talking Insights, the podcast series from SMR that gazes into the crystal ball of the future to find out where the world is going next. I'm your host, Srikar Gavinder and throughout this series, I'm speaking to researchers and thought leaders from around the world to explore the past, present, and future of technology, society, business, and beyond. There's no time like the present to talk about the future, so let's dive in. Technology is evolving fast. And nowhere is this more evident than in China. Although Western media coverage of China and technology tends to focus on the government, a new wave of Chinese companies and startups are driving the development of pivotal new tools such as blockchain, cryptocurrency, and fintech. As the rest of the world starts to play catch-up to China, what insights can we gain from their fast-growing market that can help developers elsewhere? How are the Chinese public utilizing technology in their day-to-day lives? And how is China driving its national development through technology? Well, joining me today to provide a boots-on-the-ground view from China is Eliza Gritchie, community listening reporter for TechNode based in Shanghai, and she specializes in reporting on blockchain, crypto, and China's fintech sector. She's previously worked as a reporter for Wiki Tribune and Athens Live, and holds a double MSc in global media and communications from the London School of Economics and Fudan University, as well as a BA in philosophy, politics, and economics from the University of York. And I can add from personal experience that she makes a damn good tzatziki. So Eliza, thank you very much for joining me on Talking Insights.
1: Hey Shreeka, really good to be on with you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I think we've got plenty to talk about uh, in this episode. Let's start with, so blockchain, crypto and fintech we mentioned is a kind of two, three main areas that you're interested in and focused on in your work. Uh, Blockchain in particular, I've done some research on it, but not everyone is very familiar with it. So can you give us a kind of quick cliff notes version of how it actually works?
1: Yeah, so... uh blockchain is basically a a different way of storing information and it's somewhat decentralized to different extents, but it's basically um, a a chain of blocks that record the information and it uses encryption and cryptography to improve data security and transparency. So it's not a magic solution to anything. Um, And it's, it's not necessarily tied to cryptocurrencies, although it's the, the ledger that cryptocurrencies are are, are built on, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, it has a lot of applications, like anything from um, you know cryptocurrencies, like how does a bank keep track of your money, um, to you as a company, how do you keep track of uh, all your employees and where they're traveling this this month, right? So it's 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 a it's a it's a multi-purpose key, I would say, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I remember reading, you know, sometime when I was doing my, my own master thesis, looking at blockchain. Uh, you know, you the, the original white paper by Satoshi Nakamoto, and that's kind of the under well, the pseudonym, and uh, which is like the underpinning for Bitcoin and everything that came afterwards. But as you mentioned, there are more modern uses for companies of things. Things that I've come across are, you know, keeping track of shipping ledgers. Uh, you know, when you're transporting goods by sea, um, I think banks or you know, keeping track of ID documents for human rights uh, refugees. And what are some of the uses of blockchain that you're seeing emerging in China? That's perhaps more day to day, or you know, used um, even by the government as well.
1: So uh, one big area is, is uh, supply chain traceability, uh, with a particular focus on food. So, mm-hmm. for example, Walmart and IBM are have worked on a, a traceability platform where you can scan a code on your food, and then you can see where it came from and what factory did it come from and who transported it and so on and so forth. Um, A a lot of like cross border trade things going on recently um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of enterprise applications. So as I was saying, like keeping track of your employees, you can also just use it from a very boring and unsexy perspective of changing your databases in a way that yeah. allows like different departments to to have access to all this data and this data to be easily transferable and more transparently kept and more securely kept. Um, with regards to government applications, um, there's there's a there's a really big push from mm. various governments around China. Um, the biggest one, the, mo- the most compre- comprehensive plan I've seen would be from the the local government of Beijing. So not the central government, the city government. And they have like a list of 12 areas where they want to use blockchain. And a lot of it is for customs and cross-border transactions and trade, but also like what they call e-governance. So marriage certificates. So you put your marriage certificate on the blockchain and then that's more easy to find for other people. Um, what else? A lot of like financial applications, real estate. So keeping track of who owns what.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, yeah, I mean, they they are now in the process of, I think, rolling it out, rolling it out to pretty much every aspect of government <laughs> that you can imagine.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, looking at China in that this kind of discussion around blockchain being used for, you know, land registries. It's something that has been in the discussion it's been in the space for a while but i don't think any countries have really taken that step of pushing forward and doing it and you think perhaps is that's what sets china apart right now is it's not just a discussion around oh let's think about doing this but there's a real drive to actually get it implemented and get it you know in daily use
1: yeah definitely i mean um you know since satoshi's paper on the advent of bitcoin the bitcoin becoming like worth $20,000 or whatever it is right um, there's been yeah. a lot of talk about the the magic of blockchain and that we can do everything but not so much implementation although I would say that around the world it has entered the mainstream in the last year um, but I think China China is really really good at rolling out technology and it's really good at experimenting with technology and I think that's something that's not very well understood outside China. Mm -hmm. So what the central government does is they say, oh, we want to develop this technology, in this case, blockchain. So last year, uh, Xi Jinping made a speech in October, uh, end of October, so almost one year from today. um, And he said, we want to develop blockchain. And so all the local governments hear this, and they want their city or their province to be the best. They want their province to be the best blockchain developer in the eyes of the central government because the officials yeah. themselves want to um, you know, get kudos for their work. And so they start racing at this and they think, okay, what can we do? What can we do? So we can make a technology park and we can give incentives like tax breaks and free rent and free offices to companies. We can make um, blockchain companies. We can make... Um, um, what else do they do? We can um, give make, like training academies, we can partner with innovative companies to build training centers for engineers, we can tell our universities to set up blockchain labs. So they they think of all these different ways to develop this technology. And then they pick a lot of different companies and they sort of court them. Um, to convince them that you want to work with us, right? You want to work with the Shanghai government to do this, or it's actually like even more micro than that. So I know that in Shanghai, um, there's like three different district governments. So this would be like the equivalent of like Hackney versus the city of London versus um, Islington that are courting like different experts and companies to become part of their like blockchain development programs. And so then you have all these local governments partnering with private companies and throwing a lot of money in, um, which, of course, creates a lot of growth and a lot of buzz and a lot of random products and a lot of applications in government services or, I don't know, like the metro. Um, And a lot of that is going to end up being a total waste of money because, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe those people don't really know what they're doing, but some of them, will end up being great and then someone at the higher levels of the government is maybe going to see that and they're going to start to take it nationwide or it might not even have to do with like the government at all maybe the company that worked with this just government to make this um real estate registry thing then it becomes so successful that they get other clients and they they get more clients and their company grows um organically through market forces so this this is really how um tech, this is a very like, you know, high level view of how tech becomes popular. And you can see that with all sorts of things, like um, agricultural technology I'm a really big fan of, and a lot of the Western provinces of China or rural China, the local governments um, want to draw companies to revitalize uh, rural areas. So they're doing the same thing with like drones or IOT for agriculture. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really fascinating and it moves really fast and it's very, also it's, you know, it's very hard to know which one of these things are going to be successful. And it's like a situation where there's so many people trying to sell you on their idea all the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, I, I mean, just the description you gave then, I, you know, we were, just before we started recording and we were having a little kind of pre-discussion that you mentioned sometimes, you know, moving from Europe to then living in China, it's almost like being in a parallel universe and the way you describe things, then to me, you know, being based in Europe, you think this is all the things that we kind of talk about here as being, you know, the distant blade runner future. Uh, but is, but is a reality and is, you know, it's every day, um, right now, already in China. And I think, as you mentioned, then a lot of that has to do with the, the government push for this to become a reality as opposed to relying on private industry to try and get things to that point. Uh, is that do you think that's kind of the distinction here that perhaps in in the western world we're too reliant on private enterprises whether it's venture capitalists or whoever else pushing the you know the kind of innovation or pushing the investment as opposed to it being government driven
1: um yeah i mean i would say that the government definitely has a really big influence here and one one real advantage that the regulators and the policymakers here have is that they can really work for the long term, right? So they have five-year mm-hmm. plans. The new one is going to come out in the next couple of months. Um, and the five-year plans build onto one another, but they have a, vi- a vision even longer than that, right? So when they yeah. say we're investing in blockchain as the government, it's not because they want some um, people to be to vote for them in the next election. They They are thinking mm-hmm. very, very long term. So I think that's one big advantage. They're in it for the long game, Um, which I think, you know, coming from Europe is very shocking. Um,
0: Yeah, it's not a reality that we're used to here, is that it's more of a every few years, everything gets flipped on its head and new priorities come in and all the rest.
1: But but I also, like, I would say that um, Chinese entrepreneurs are, Crazy, quite frankly, like the the work ethic <laughs> um is absolutely insane to me,
0: it's in a good kind of way, <laughs> it's,
1: yeah, yeah, no, and I mean, some of them are like actually crazy, um but but they make it work, but um, uh, so like things that other companies consider other countries consider bad, so for example, there's no protection of copyright, right um, that actually mm. increases competition to such an insane extent, because if you made Amazon. And you trademark your whatever, like your algorithm and your platform and your logo, and then you're protected. Um, then that's one level of competition. If you make Amazon, and as soon as it becomes popular, literally like five thousand other companies just steal your code, and they just, <laughs> yeah, you know, throw more money at like making it work. Then the competition is just is, is just insane. And also, it's also like the size of China. Like once you have a product working in mm-hmm. China, you're talking you know one point four billion people, which is not what it's more than the combined population of Europe and the u s so
0: it's I guess again on that competition front there it could perhaps be if you're big in one city in China that's perhaps the equivalent of being huge in an entire country uh, over in Europe or being successful in, on a national level in Europe so it's, it's more there's that room for competition and innovation which perhaps we just don't have uh in the west or yeah, it, it's fascinating to kind of wrap your head around because you mentioned then you might have thousands of copycat companies, but then how do you get that one, you know, you take something like your Alibaba's or Ten Cents of China, how do you get that one which really stands out and really kind of rises above this sea of competition?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's like, you know, one recipe for that. I think after a certain level, there is... Um, a certain friendliness and blurring of the lines between private and public sector that doesn't really happen, Mm -hmm. um, in the West, but it's, it's, you know, if, if, if you're an entrepreneur and and it looks like you're really great at building telecommunications infrastructure, this just came, I'm not implying anyone in particular. Um, (laughs) Then you might attract the attention of of some people that will help you, but they will also push you, right? Like I think, like the the Chinese system is very meritocratic in in some ways, um, but in other ways it's it's not. So anyway, I mean, that's that's I think that's going into areas that I'm not like an expert on.
0: No, I, it's it's really it's interesting to think about because you know what you mentioned then in terms of there's a kind of that. That bond that emerges between a private body and the public body, I, I kind of think, you know, look at Amazon's corporate tax rate in Europe, or you look at, you know, Facebook's kind of sweetheart deal with Ireland, and you think, we, we do have a very similar approach here. But the thing is, at the end of the day, that the advantages that China seems to get from these relationships don't really manifest themselves. In, it's, in Europe, it's more of a, there's a lot of taking by the companies and then not much giving in return.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I guess that does have to do with the size of the companies because, you know, Google is bigger than Greece, which is where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in China, um, you don't really have this, like China, like the and, and the, the Chinese government will be like bigger and more powerful than a lot of these companies. But I, I think they're just better at working together as well the
0: private and the public. But yeah, yeah sorry, go on. Well, it, it's that's a good segue point, actually, because this interplay <laughs> between in the private and public. Um, you know, speaking of blockchain, and obviously one of the main applications of blockchain, you now I've got sidetracked a bit there, um, is, is cryptocurrency. And crypto, you mentioned, is one of your kind of specialists or your interest areas. I'm curious, what is the perception of cryptocurrency in China versus here in the West? Whereas we've, here, there's been a lot of... Ad, hesitates hesitate to say fear-mongering, but it is in that vein of, oh, you know, cryptocurrency is what you use to buy drugs or hire hitmen on the dark web. And, you know, you have people like the CEO of JP Morgan calling it out as a scam or some kind of Ponzi scheme. How is cryptocurrency viewed in China when here in the West it's torn between a very niche hobby uh, or as, as like an investment or it's seen as just outright fraudulent?
1: So... Um, so I'm going to, uh, this, whatever you're going to say applies to like urbanites, not so much people in rural China who mm-hmm. probably don't even know what crypto is Yeah. Um, because you know, there's a big divide there. So crypto is, uh, is quite like a touchy topic in China and especially in the, in the sense that it's considered uh, a scam. There's still a lot of scams related to cryptocurrency in China. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually everywhere in the world Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the the government had, and has still banished the major, uh, Chinese exchanges like, uh, finance, mm-hmm. um, back in 2017. Um, of course people have like VPNs and they can still access, access it. Uh, so yeah, I think I, I wouldn't say it's really mainstream, um, at all. And I think that is in part because uh, the government didn't really like let it become um, mainstream, but at the same time, I think if you, um, if you gave someone a crypto wallet in China, they'll probably, um, understand it or like be more willing to use it. Um, just interfacing with the application because we are a lot more used to, uh, you know, Alipay and WeChat and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then there is of course a crypto community which is uh, extremely vibrant and some of the world's most important cryptocurrency companies are, are are based in China or are Chinese but technically like headquartered in other places.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I so, saw um I think it was one of your articles actually uh, on techno talking about um Ethereum and you know their kind of push into into China and they were talking a lot about how there's a lot of talent there in terms of the developers and the community too who can I find it fascinating that at the same time there's this skeptical attitude from the government but there's so much talent that's ready in China and and interested in working on on this technology and how do you see perhaps that developing as you move uh, move forwards Uh, do you think China might perhaps become more open to the idea of, of cryptocurrency
1: um no (laughs) (laughs) i think uh, so like first of all so china does not allow initial coin offerings for example Mm -hmm. um actually i was just writing yesterday about um okex which is a a crypto exchange and it's the, the rumor is going around right now that they did a they did a backdoor listing in in hong kong in 2018 and there's a a rumor. I mean, definitely, um, their co-founder has been, is being investigated and has, has been arrested. Um, oh, okay, <laughs> that's definitely true, but yeah. Um, the, nobody really knows why. And the rumor is that it's because of this factor listing. So, uh, like the, the Chinese government is, I don't think is ever going to like ICOs. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and quite frankly, I agree with them. Um, be- because I, I think that, um, ICOs is just like a crazy thing that's happening. I think like it's on on paper, it's a good idea to use tokenization and offering like a coin to help your business. But in in practice, what you do is you create this huge stock market with no regulation. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of instances of, of people issuing coins and then they just sell off the, like the owners of the company or the parts of the foundation, like they will sell off all of their coins as soon as, the price is picked up and then the coin dumps and you know what this happens Um, yeah yeah (laughs) i'm shaking my head
0: (laughs) well because it makes you think of you know i'm just i'm kind of thinking back to when i was doing company law back at university and obviously there's there's all these laws around when you have a share offering for example in in a conventional company and what type of shares you can issue how you can issue them how they can be transferred and tokenization just seems to be a way to sidestep all of that uh, to to raise capital without any real oversight, and that leads to, as you mentioned, these instances where as soon as the value goes up, people sell and run, and then that in turn feeds into this perception of uh, cryptocurrency as being, uh, well, shady for lack of a better word, or uh, you know, untrustworthy.
1: Yeah, and, and like you know, sometimes when I explain this to people, um, they're like, "How is this legal?" <laughs> 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 and i think that's a fair question um mm-hmm. but and i think in china like one of the so on this topic of like regulating crypto uh one of the of the big debates going on recently from a, a lot of investors are really not happy with centralized exchanges so you know now like the, the rise of of defy which i don't really understand very well myself um but a lot of investors are, are not happy and they think that the exchanges like OKX or Binance because they themselves might be trading. They, they say they issue a lot of fake tokens um, mm-hmm. that don't, there's no like company behind them just because they want to make money. And they say they are, are artificially uh, messing with, with the prices of, of the tokens because they are not regulated.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and that's, and I also to think of you know here and if you go back to the Bitcoin example because Bitcoin is you know it's the most well known of, of all the cryptocurrencies, and you mentioned previously how you know the value kind of there was that amazing spike when it hit twenty odd something thousand dollars, and a lot of that was driven not necessarily by people who were trying to embrace that disruptive model that that you know Nakamoto first put forward of being here's an alternative way of thinking about currency that relies more on trust as opposed to these gatekeepers. But the, then it was transformed into something that's viewed more as a commodity to, uh, for investors and venture capitalists to to get into. Uh, which Which of those perspectives do you think is more prevalent perhaps in China? Is it seen at the moment crypto as it's another form of an asset or it's another kind of commodity to invest in? Or is there still more that spirit that, hey, here's something really disruptive that really changes the way that we we deal with finance and we deal with banks and these institutions?
1: Um, That's a good question. Um, So I th- I think mainly it's th- mainly the people who trade on it, trade on it as an asset. I feel like, you know, mm. now it's, 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 I'm not sure what the price is today, but it's, well, it's within the $10,000, $10, right? So I, I don't think a coin worth $10,000 can necessarily like disrupt anymore. And, I think we've, you know, I think the technology has moved past Bitcoin itself and, and we see that other, um, other methods like staking, um, are perhaps better ways because, because, you know, the Bitcoin Mm. network, you just can't basically like do transactions because it just takes too long. Um, but I would, I would say that I think the whole blockchain, uh, industry, not just the crypto people, um, has definitely moved away from Satoshi's vision. And, you know, if we're seeing Costco and Alibaba use blockchain <laughs> for their shipping logistics, yeah, um, then I think a lot of big companies, not just technology companies, have realized that there is a, a different potential to blockchain that is perhaps completely antithetical mm-hmm. to the original, like, Crypto anarchist vision.
0: Mm-hmm. And speaking of the big companies, um, you know, recently, just to bring it back to Europe for a second, you here in the Netherlands, we had a news story about how there's been a huge new wind farm that's opened, and you know, it can generate enough power to supply 300,000 households. But then it was later revealed that the power would be going to a Microsoft data center uh, that's going to be built <laughs> in the area, and not, you know, for the Azure kind of cloud service. Not actually for the Netherlands to service you know um users in the Middle East and in Africa as well and I think energy is a big part of this conversation which a lot of people you know might not think about or focus about because as you all know when when you're using a blockchain you're using cryptocurrency uh, mining actually kind of achieving that cryptographic truth and proof of of uh, I've forgotten the term here, but yeah, the proof of kind of, uh, you know, solution that you have to do
2: proof of, work.
0: A, proof of work. There we go. It takes a huge amount of energy and, you know, GPU usage. How big is this in China really? Cause if you mentioned the interest that there is, how how much mining is actually going on in China and on an environmental level or an energy level, what, what is the impact? Cause it must be pretty, pretty huge.
1: So this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. I love talking about mining in China. Um, so I don't,
0: I, But not the kind of mining people might normally think about. this, yes, is, this the, is
1: crypto, the crypto sign, yeah. mining, which is, it, it also creates yeah. a lot of compu- confusion because there's crypto miners, but then there's Bitcoin farms. So the metaphors there get mm-hmm. a little uh, confused. So I I don't know what the actual like percentage of the total electricity is because uh, a lot of the mining is, not totally legal, not totally illegal. Um, there was mm-hmm. a point in the early Bitcoin days where I think entrepreneurs, and you know, not like a regular student tie entrepreneur, uh, but people with entrepreneurial spirit um, in China realized mm-hmm. how big mining is going to be. And then you had these huge infrastructure projects that the Chinese government loves to do. Um, of hydropower, um, solar power, in parts of China that there's just not so much electricity usage. So, uh, and I think they were the first to really understand the importance of scale in mining, because the more, mm. put it very simply, the more machines you have, the more likely you are to to do the right, like uh, to win the lottery, let's say, because it is kind of like yeah. winning the lottery, because your computer is like guessing um anyway um and so it it's gotten to the point where the china accounts for depending who you ask like 50 to 60 percent of the global hash rate for bitcoin which is wow. a measure yeah. of the computing power of the network
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and it's it's crazy because it really is like it really was people uh just sort of finding the right dam operator and plugging in their Bitcoin machines. And that has become very professionalized. Like now the latest mining machines cost 20,000 each and you need like a lot of them to, 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 to run a sustainable business. Um, so yeah, so like out in the mountains, in the Himalayas in the middle of nowhere and like the plains of Mongolia, Um, you have these mining farms and this is where the Bitcoin network happens. And so they're, they're using so much electricity. Like it's, it's going to be quite a lot. And it is, it's also seasonal, which I find really interesting. So when it's rain season in Sichuan, which is in, um, sort of Southwest China, next to the Himalayas, um and then the the rain falls from the Himalayas down into the dams, and there's a lot of electricity production, so then that accounts for more of of the hash rate and then it might move to Xinjiang when there's like more sun um, which is i think uh, yeah I think it's just a it's, it's we weird. so weirdly
0: sustainable in in a way right like if it's kind of seasonal and it's using these you know renewable sources, if you're talking about hydroelectric power or solar power i mean how does the sustainability factor play into this because surely you know as with the rest of the world china must also be looking at at things like carbon footprint and how to boost that renewable energy rate
1: yeah so so now they made the new the thing is this is i mean some of it is coal i must say i think in mongolia they have really cheap coal electricity um also Hmm. note these places are cold which also helps keep the machines cool so it you're yeah. like cooling costs down and you're consuming less electricity for that. Um, so like it's sustainable power, but it's not really, it's not being used for something that you might want your like huge infrastructure project to be used for. Mm. Maybe you were thinking, Oh, this can power, uh, homes, you know, or cars. Yeah, um, <laughs> Something that like is, perhaps more useful to the people of china mm-hmm. um so now they set the new uh carbon goals uh for 2030 and 2060 and I, this is this was just like a speech so there's nothing really concrete that has come out of it but i'm really curious to see uh how that impacts bitcoin and another and, and other miners other kinds of miners in china because i i really i really don't know because I, I don't know if 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 governments think of this as, oh, this is a great use of our electricity um, or if they think it's a waste, Mm. you know?
0: Well, let's, and then let's say if we draw a parallel perhaps between that kind of data center use case in the Netherlands and, you know, in China as well, I mean, do you have a similar situation developing in China with, you know, data centers in particular now taking up more of not just the electricity, but kind of land usage and, is there requirements in China, as there are we've seen in India with their new data protection law to have, you know, servers built in India if they're going to use the data of Indian citizens? Is there a similar approach in China where the you know companies that are international are having to build data centers in China to serve the needs of the local population?
1: Yes. Um the China was um, China started sort of having piecemeal regulation about this around 2006, and then it kept going until 2017, where they released their landmark cybersecurity law. That's how I write it in my articles. And there they have very strict data localization requirements. As a result, um, so my, my my I use an iPhone. Um, my iCloud data uh, is stored in a company, Guizhou, which mm. is also near the Himalayas have these big caves and so apple has had joint venture with a local company and they're they're they've built some data centers in the caves also by the way a lot of these mining companies call themselves data centers ah, okay. and 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 there was like in sichuan which is near the himalayas with the big hydropower dams there's a there was a new policy to sort of bring companies in and they they want to make like hyd- hydropower parks so create a tech park um next to the dam hmm. so that there's like no wasted electricity and everyone was looking out if there was going to be some mining companies which call themselves data center operators and there there were some so that's like kind of good signs from at least that particular province that um they will like they are looking at mining as a as a as an industry worth supporting Um, but yeah, China data localization a lot, like Hmm. so much, um, (laughs) it's, uh, like a very, pretty strict framework. Um, the, so there's, they say that any data related to national security, um, they call, they have this category called critical, uh, infrastructure operators, which includes like finance, transport infrastructure, military infrastructure. Um, And then also they consider critical data, any data that is has to do with more than 500,000 people. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, And all of that, you're not really supposed to move outside China. Um, Now, What's really interesting is that whilst India and Indonesia and um, Nigeria and other countries and the EU with SHRAMS too, um, whilst all these countries are moving towards data localization, China very recently um, wants to move away from it. So they're, well, not not like exactly. So they're experimenting with, uh, in the free trade zones. So in Hainan, Shanghai, maybe Beijing, but we don't know. Mm -hmm but in, definitely in, in Hainan and Shanghai, um, the free trade zone plans include um, provisions of, we're gonna make it easier for companies to move their data abroad to presumably enable like cross border trade of data. And also in their latest data security law, they said that maybe local governments can have a little bit more responsibility to judge each, each uh, companies like, um, data flow. so if you know if i'm a company in shanghai and i tell the government that i want to move um my data on transport to the uk bus maker because i want Mm -hmm. them to to tfl right because i want them to help me like build a system of 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 creating bus lines or whatever um then the shanghai government would have like more freedom to decide that without going to the ministry of information security there's like 11 ministries Mm. involved in in approving (laughs) Cross-border <laughs> data flows. So you
0: set a healthy layer of bureaucracy just to make sure that no one is abusing the system.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they they so on the draft security law was really interesting because you know China had a very strict data policy for national security starting in twenty seventeen and even before that. And they were they were very clear that um, you know, data is an important resource that we need to keep in our country, because mm-hmm. we want to have um, a sort of competitive advantage. And now they're moving more, I, I think, again, I don't, I don't really know what like is going on in, in, in the minds of the people that make these policy documents. Um, but the way I see it, and other analysts have seen it, is that they see it more like oil, and so they want to create a good framework of how do you trade that and how do you also they include provisions that say if a country doesn't share their data with us. Yeah. So the EU, which will presumably not share data with China because they don't have good privacy protection. So under like GDPR adequacy um, provisions, they can't share data. Um, then China is like, oh, so we, we're not going to share our data with you.
0: Oh, the, the, the dangerous the new the oil conversation, I think. It's super interesting. We could we could do a whole separate discussion just on that. But I mean, one of the things that that has been striking to me with the way you are describing things in China is is that all the conversations that are now happening in Europe seem to have happened in China about five years ago, and they've just been they've been moved on first. And you know, it's things that are still in the discussion space here a very kind of early stage. Are very they're already implemented or day to day, or they're being you know innovated further upon uh, in China. And I think one of the things that really stood out to me. You know, we've had a couple of conversations about this since, you know, lockdown began as well, is in the fintech space. And fintech space, online banking in particular, generally people doing more things online. You know, this, the, the scale of it in China is, is amazing compared to the stage we're at in Europe. Um, why, why do you think the general public or, you know, customers in China have been so much more receptive and have been so quick to take on things like fintech and online only services than people based in Europe and in the U S.
1: So I think a lot of that has to do with, uh, online to offline integration, um, from the design perspective hmm. so when, you know, Alipay and WeChat, um, popularize their solutions. You have this QR code. And so now like literally, even beggars in China, which there are, there are not many beggars in China. Let me be clear about that. Um, <laughs> but even they will have a a printed QR code where you can scan it with your phone, with your WeChat or your mm. Alipay, and you can send um, money to them. I wow. um and everything. Like I, whenever I go back to Europe, I I just I just feel like I've traveled back in time. Honestly. <laughs> Um, <laughs> other things not so much. I like I think a lot of this was because China does did at the time have a really, really strict um financial system. Mm-hmm. So like and, and, and it still is really strict. And even for Alipay and WeChat, like they do have to abide by pretty strict regulations. But the, the financial system was very controlled. And so I think it was a very easy solution to people. And and Alipay and WeChat did a very, very good job of of this online to offline integration, which I think is, is very important. There's no cards. I just explained to a lady in my building yesterday. She was I was telling her um how I think Shanghai is is a lot more like technologically developed. Um, she's a Shanghainese lady. She's like seven. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and she was like, oh really you think it's more developed than Europe? And I was like, yeah, like we have this, all this like technology and stuff. And she's like, so what are you what do you use if you don't use WeChat? And I told her we use bank cards. She was like, what? (laughs) Little
0: little bits of plastic with
1: a a a magnetized
0: strip. yeah."
1: (laughs) Which I don't, I mean, I'm not saying that's worse. I'm just saying, I think this is more convenient. And it is the whole Mm. ecosystem, right? Like, you know, Alipay and Ant Group, not Ant Financial anymore. Um, And Alibaba with Taobao. So like Chinese Amazon. Um, and then there's like a host of other apps that I, I don't really use. Mm. You, you just, you, and, or WeChat, like on WeChat, I can, I can pay for things. I can talk to people. Um, I can do, I can book appointment appointments for my hospital. I can order KFC. Um, I, every, like there's like WeChat mini stores. I can read the news. It's a, it's a publishing platform. A lot of like small bloggers, um, just publish on WeChat. Yeah. I can do so many things on this one app. And, yeah, it's 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 very, very convenient.
0: And is there a kind of, like, limit to that? So, I mean, you no. Know, here as well, speaking of Europe, we're slowly kind of starting to catch on, you know, recently it's with integration with these things. So you use the Uber Eats app on your phone and you can use Apple Pay or Android Pay if you have it set up. And now, you know, contactless payments is more of a thing... And is, in China, have you yet found the limit of where this technology can run? Or is it really just to the question of you can use it for, for anything?
1: Um, so there's, I mean, there's some, you know, market forces. So, for example, like streaming, we have mm. a lot of, there's a lot of different streaming platforms. And I don't think that if, um, you know, Alibaba made its own streaming platform. It would be successful. Now, Tencent actually owns just just bought some some streaming platforms. Um, so also like Tencent and Alibaba have stakes in a lot of companies. Also, most of the mm. Western gaming companies, by the way, like Epic yeah, I think, Games. I think it was,
0: yeah, Supercell as well. I think I saw, which is huge for mobile games. That's uh, Tencent owned a pretty big stake in that.
1: Oh, Tencent has stakes in like. Every, impo- not every, obviously not Sony um, or Nintendo, but a lot of like the publishers, a lot like Epic and Riot, they both have, mm-hmm. I think, like 30 or 40% stake, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, so there's market forces, then there's regulatory things. So, like with FinTech, um, so Ant Group uh, and, and WeChat Bank, they also have um, kind of lending services.
2: But
1: or um in investment advice, but this is not the way your bank would be able to do it. And I think um I actually don't know. Maybe you can tell me like what FinTech operators can do in Europe. But um so like with investment, they cannot um formally they cannot like advise you on which funds to buy exactly. Um they they can give you data, but they can't they can advise you, but they can't like sell it to you. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. They 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 have yeah. limits. I don't want to get into like the technical licensing
2: stuff. Yeah,
0: well, yeah. Well, when I see you know things that people term fintech in the West, it's generally I here it's kind of used almost as a synonym to online only. No, it's mm-hmm. not so much the technology and services. It's more the fact that they don't have brick and mortar. Branches that you go into—it's all just done via a website, via an app—and that—that's kind of where fintech, mm. you know, in quotation marks, is is at uh, at the moment in Europe. And I think it's it's fascinating to compare, you know, just how how big that that kind of development lag like is, or that kind of integration lag, like is a better word perhaps between between Europe and China, where here it's still very much. It's almost a niche hobbyist thing. You know. If you ask how many people have an account with N26, let's say the, the kind of fintech bank uh, you know based out in Germany, compared to a conventional bank like ING or ABN, the difference is going to be vast. The difference is going to be absolutely huge uh, in terms of the number of customers. So it's the fact that it's reached that mainstream level in China, I think, and is that also a lot to do with the public's understanding of technology or is it the usability of these tools? I mean, is there... Uh, An element of that as well that has driven how quickly this is spread
1: um so i I don't know i think a lot of it is like banks in china are bad my you know (laughs) i i used to bank with um i'm not gonna say its name but it it, it includes hong kong and shanghai in the uk and
0: i I wouldn't know what you'd abbreviate that to yeah (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, like they were they were you know, obviously it's a bank, it's going to give me some hassle. Um, My bank here in China, I went to change my address. It took me Mm. like an hour and a half. And it's not because I like the the person was speaking English, by the way, I want to clarify this. Um, And they gave me, I think, like 15 different sheets of paper. So they are very like, and they, they have all these like little procedures and, so I think the banking sector is is really antiquated here, although to be fair i don't I don't use um all of their apps and things because I find them hard to use um so why do people like fintech so much um I think yeah, I think it has to do with like people are more willing to accept technology, even like old people in China, they all use mm. um WeChat and and Alipay. I've met one person that didn't have a smartphone, although that might be because of where I travel. But I recently met I met a farmer and he had a sat phone because he didn't have reception where he lived. Um, oh, so it's not
0: the question that he didn't want one. It's more that like he couldn't really use one if he had one. Yeah,
1: yeah, he could, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I'm sure there's a lot of people like that in chat. But there yeah. are also like like, there's really cheap phones here that are really decent like uh, oppo and and vivo phones um mm-hmm. which are or like those are like the other two there's like xiaomi and huawei and, and then o- those. i see there's
0: in india a lot as well because india also has a similar thing where you know within the past five years the kind of smartphone revolution has completely you know exploded onto the scene everyone has a smartphone now and everyone's on 4g i imagine 5g soon when that rolls out there as well and probably because you aren't caught in the West as you obviously know, do you have an iPhone or do you have a Samsung? It's more, well, here's 20 different smaller brands that you can choose from who are all competing to push the price lower and lower.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and also here, by the way, we have really good connectivity in general. Like I have full four bars, 4G and I haven't tried the, their 5G, but I'm su- I'm pretty sure I would have pretty good 5G as well. If mm-hmm. I if I invested in that, I have, I have that in the Metro in the, in the, in the train as
0: it's moving. Yeah, <laughs> I'm on overground trains in the Netherlands and I have, there's dead spots for <laughs> signal here. So it's, 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 it's a very small country too. Let's be honest. I think the whole, the Netherlands probably one city in China. So it's a, uh...
1: yeah. Yeah. It's probably really bad for me though. I don't know. I, I don't know if I believe in our phones bad for you. I don't
0: know. you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of people that might generally say phones are bad, what you mentioned just then in terms of even, you know, all the older population in China being more open to tech or tech savvy, it, it, it's it's interesting because the last podcast that we did, we were speaking to the guys at Borderless Access who were doing this research into digitizing healthcare and digitizing, you know, how you speak to doctors and how you arrange these appointments. And one of the things that they mentioned is that obviously uptake is lower it, You know, places where you have an older population or in places where people are more set in their ways in terms of how to do things. And funny enough, their research pointed to most of those places being in the West. So, countries such as Indonesia and uh, India and Nigeria, you know, you're looking at Africa and the East, they were much more likely to take on these digital solutions than people based in Germany or in the USA who were very reluctant uh, to do things. And I'm curious to get your take because, you know, they gave me the perspective from Germany and India. From the view in China, why why is that, you know, people are much more inclined to take up these tech-driven solutions. And I think one of the factors they mentioned was obviously the privacy angle, which in the EU is obviously a huge conversation. Is it as much of a public conversation in China? Are people as kind of open to discuss or question, you know, what's happening with their personal data?
1: Uh, not so much. But then again, the EU is, you know, definitely at the I would say at the top of the conversation right and people are really talking about it a lot um I mean in in China like public conversation is is different and like what you would talk about with your friends is a little different um but there's definitely like there there is um you know like scholars professors who write about this um are actively like pushing for privacy protection and so on and so forth I think you're I mean, the the best and the worst thing about the technology in China is that it is a trance. And hmm. you know, that sort of dystopian model of everyone is on their phone and they're just looking at videos and have no idea what's going on around them.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, Alibaba has made it happen here. <laughs> um, of course, like at the same whenever like yesterday actually I watched my first live stream um with the lipstick king. We're gonna make a video about it. Um mm-hmm. the lipstick king is a guy who makes a million dollars a month, probably more, selling wow. cosmetics on Taobao, where he it's like it's like a seven hour long live stream where he just yells and you have to buy things. And they were like <laughs> they were. Um, at some point, there were a hundred, a hundred and like seventy million people. No, a hundred, definitely a hundred and fifty million people watching this. <laughs> wow. And
0: okay. So I just wanted double the population of the United Kingdom on on one live stream.
1: Yeah, just this guy, like, <laughs> um, and I wanted to get some hand cream, and surprise, surprise, I didn't. Um, but you know, it is, it is very good. It's, and you know, the, I think like TikTok has been a really good example of that. Like we have, there's, yeah. there's a lot of, in China we call it Douyin. There's, uh, there's a few platforms like that. Um, and they are very addictive. I mean, I, I don't really, there's another one that I like more cause it has more like rural content and I really like mm-hmm. watching people like cook food in the countryside and things like that. Um but TikTok itself I don't really I don't I don't have it and I don't really follow it other than obviously like the political perspective mm-hmm. um but yeah it's just it's just it's just too good um for <laughs> our own good and like it like even the Taobao homepage I just I just I have a hard time not being on Taobao a lot it's also because obviously like a a lot like Twitter and Instagram and my other drugs I have to use VPN for.
0: So that kind of gets in the way of the the, the quick hit convenience of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's, for me, it's, it's, we chat, LinkedIn. I scroll LinkedIn a lot because it's not banned. Um, And, and Taoba. I'm on Taoba a lot. I'm on Taoba way more than I should be. (laughs) But I just, I, I find it so fascinating. Like, yeah, sorry, go on.
0: No, t- t- TikTok is a really interesting example you brought up because obviously TikTok has been huge in the discussion over in the West as well. You have the whole debacle with the US. Um, but funnily enough, a couple of weeks ago, we did um, I did a podcast with Graham Staplehurst from, from Kantar Brand Z. So we do kind of trust evaluations of brands across the world. And, and TikTok was a brand new entry into the top 100 in its first year of being operational. Yeah, straight into number 75. Um, TikTok just jumped in there. You know, right at the top of the list, you have global companies like like Amazon and Alibaba and Apple. And TikTok out of nowhere, you know, came into this list because mainly because of the reasons that you're mentioning, because it has that kind of compulsive use, that kind of addictiveness to it, that feeling that all of your peers are on there. So you want to be on there as well. And it really bypassed this whole. Privacy conversation because it was people like, well, it's fun and I want to use it. So it's <laughs> who cares about the rest uh, in a way. And do you, do you see is, is that perhaps a common thread with some of these apps that you're seeing and that that you're using, you know, personally?
1: Yeah, yeah. They're um, like, like again, we ha- we have like you know, other than the platforms, also like there's like mini TikToks on Taobao, on like JD. All the e-commerce apps have this. Scrolling short video thing, mm. um, which Instagram also tried to do. Unsuccessfully, by the way. I think, let's we'll say. Unsuccessfully, <laughs> yeah. Um, didn't go very well. But the, I mean, TikTok is, uh, and ByteDance is an, is a very interesting company because of the way they approach things, mm. like Totiao, which is their their previous app where they were just sharing news. They they basically use the same idea over how to approach the algorithm, which is because the Facebooks right and the Twitters, they uh, t- Twitter I think is trying to move away from this, but Facebook definitely does this. It it's you it's a social network first, hmm. right? So then it serves you content based on what your friends like, and of course it counts it it, it measures your interaction with things as well, but your newsfeed is is dominated by like your, it's called your, the social graph. And I don't want to say too much about this cause I'm not an expert, but it's, you know, it's a social approach to what it shows you on the feed. Mm. Whereas Totiao and TikTok, right? You open the app, you don't need to add anyone. It just starts showing you things. Yeah. And it, it's interesting from a, from a, from an interface perspective as well, right? Because Facebook has like three things going on, right? It has three sort of columns of of interaction one of them is the newsfeed, um, one of them anyway and but but what tiktok does is it covers your whole screen with a video and then it's just it just starts showing you things and it measures everything you're doing yeah, and how it's long just it makes it or, yeah yeah and it, it makes it it's it's makes it easy for the algorithm to know what you're looking at cuz you're looking at this video so if you scroll in one second, it knows that this video doesn't interest you. Whereas Facebook, the algorithm will, won't, won't know if you stayed on this particular part of the page because you were looking at, like, the news feed versus, like, an ad on the side versus the chat with your friend, right? So the TikTok is designed, and, and I think totally to an extent, to for the algorithm to see very well what you want to do.
0: That's, that's um, fascinating, yeah. It's like a, a more efficient version of... Uh tracking your attention or I guess the issue with Facebook that's, that's been cropping up here a lot recently, you know, especially in light of, you know, the kind of QAnon, the conspiracy side of things is how there's that rabbit hole of content, right? It's kind of, you, you look at one thing and then Facebook suddenly thinks, Oh, he really enjoys this. Let's shovel 10 more of those things that way and more extreme and more attention grabbing. And that's how these kind of theories spread. And that's how you end up in these situations. And it's how, Facebook eventually comes under so much scrutiny for for its role in this and it seems the solution that that's kind of come forward in China is to almost eliminate that aspect completely.
1: Yeah, I mean and I I think also TikTok does more experimentation so it avoids these um pigeonholes, right? Because what what YouTube does hmm. is um first of all it allows for way longer content, which allows for more insane people to talk for longer. Um, <laughs> and so and secondly like it just it keeps showing you the same thing again and again like i have not followed anyone sorry subscribed to any new channels on my youtube for like two years and i keep seeing the same stuff mm. the same channels the same whereas i think i think TikTok experiments more because it wants to keep you hooked and it wants to keep you interested so it avoids mm-hmm. these, these loops um also it's very interesting there's a there's a, a really good book that i recommend for and probably anyone who's interested in this on ology knows that already knows this. Um, Kai Fu Li's book on it's called AI Superpowers. I don't know. Ag- it's really good. Uh,
0: yeah, I've come across it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so Kai Fu Li uh, was the guy who brought like Microsoft to China. Um, he's really important guy in, in Chinese technology. Um, and he talks a lot about the birth of a lot of these apps and one of the things that it talks about, like the the interface a lot and the the user, the UI and the UX, and it talks about how like the apps in China are designed more for Chinese people basically, because I think it has to do with how they read um, and the sort of uh, logographic system of of language that that they use. Um, And so when they started designing these apps, they notice, for example, that Chinese people will want, will scan the whole page um, of the results before they click on one, and that their their eye movements. They they put eye trackers on people as they were interfacing with phones. Their eye movements were all over the place, mm-hmm. and that's why now like our the Amazon gives you a list, whereas Taobao it gives you like little bits and bobs, right? Mm. Or also like um, Chinese people. Um, this is one of the reasons why Google couldn't really work in China because Google, when you click on something, yeah, it doesn't change; it, it just goes into that page, right? But Chinese people they want to, as Kai Fu Lee says, shop for information. So they want. So what Baidu did is, when you click on one of the results, mm-hmm. it opens it in a new tab. So then you can very easily go back to the first one and compare between lots of them.
0: It's, it's little differences, right? And kind of little things that you don't, you wouldn't think about on a service level, but then it it makes a lot of sense when it, now that we've come to that point where there's conversations mainstream conversations being had in the West about how companies such as, you know, whether it's Google or Facebook or Apple or Amazon have all been using these tricks to manipulate our behavior or using these tricks to manipulate, you know, consumer psychology and yeah, you, know, you realize how small a change can suddenly yeah completely flip the way someone interacts with your service.
1: Yeah. It's, and, and I I think the best thing would be to use this to do good things. Um, mm. But of course, no one really wants to design an app that you naturally interact with 15 minutes and then it reinvigorates your passion for life. And then you turn off your <laughs> phone and, and you go hiking, right? Like no one wants to do that. Like
0: the final app. <laughs> yeah.
1: But there, there is, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think there is a lot of potential in, in technology and I would really like this kind of design thinking to be implemented on other things, but I don't, I don't make these systems.
0: (laughs) I'm curious to also see uh, see, you speak about these big tech firms, especially the ones that are based out in the West. And, you know, recently you've probably seen on the news, they were all dragged in front of the U S Senate for these hearings on if it's time to, you know, break up monopolies and the, the regulatory kind of net has been drawn is starting to draw closer Uh, you know, in the West, especially. And it it feels a lot of punitive measures being taken against these companies, but not so much to kind of regulate future behavior and encourage that innovation. So I'm interested to know, you know, from your perspective in China, what is it that the government's doing there in in the kind of regulatory space to not just constrain companies, but actually push that innovation as well? Like, is there anything that they're doing differently in China compared to the way it's been handled here?
1: So... I mean, it's different because in, in China, there is a lot more protectionism, right. And an internal competition. Hmm. So one of the big things that they do is they shut off China from the rest of the world and they allow their own companies to develop like data localization. Right. So like data is, is more available to Chinese companies as opposed to other companies. Um, but, but I think this goes back to our original, um, discussion and it's, it's that, you know, China is not just about regulation and Chinese regulation for a lot of things is, is really strict, but for, but the, the government does other things as well. It's also kind of like a private enterprise as Mm. well. So it, it, it can back certain, certain companies, right. As, as opposed to others and it can conduct all of these experiments. So. I think the their model is you know regulate on one side, but experiment on the other side and 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 do support some companies.
0: so I feel that's i mean you know what's your take on this from from obviously within a, the tech context, you do a lot more kind of research looking into this and is that what's lacking in in Europe and the u s to to try and close that gap? Is it more we're so fixated here at the moment on kind of punishing the companies that do something wrong? As opposed to encouraging that next generation to to innovate and kind of look beyond.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm very, I'm very concerned about Europe, to be honest, because I don't, I don't understand why there's not that there's not more innovation coming out of Europe, and I think, I think perhaps it is this. Um, it's a, it's a lot of things, but I think one of those things is definitely that the government. Is either like they have no clue what's going on (laughs) um you know say gdpr say um i think like um it security is really interesting thing to look at because Mm. there was like no laws coming out of the eu for so long (laughs) and (laughs) um and and that's why like for for telecommunications you have just so many d- different like systems ar- around Europe and there's like no homogeneity. And, and then they were like, Oh my God, we got to do something about this because a certain other government started hating on a certain company. Mm. Right. Um, and so I think in, in Europe and in the U S like the governments are really asleep at the wheel for a lot of things. Um, and that is because, you know, they, they're very busy with some other things. Um, like in Europe, we were talking about immigration for the longest time. Yeah. And then, you know, in the meantime, we realized that China had like bought a bunch of important things in Europe. And then we were like, oh, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> um,
0: you know? Uh, funnily enough, the, the immigration conversation is, is happening again uh, in Europe with the context of technology. And interestingly enough, one of the grounds that they're putting in for, you know, more monitoring is also, uh, you know, epidemic prevention, which, Kind of leads me on to, I think, obviously the elephant in the year 2020, which is, you know, the, the kind of COVID pandemic. Um, China is obviously at a very different stage with this compared to Europe. And what, I'm curious, what role do you think technology has played in getting China to that point? Because in Europe, we've had a lot of controversies here in the Netherlands or whether it's in the UK in terms of, you know, test and trace apps and a lot of money poured into them for not very much in return. Did did technology provide the tools for China to really overcome this quicker than a lot of countries in the West are managing?
1: Yes, um, that's the short answer. So, <laughs> um, so I, I I did a lot of research on this, and I, I actually did research on on what Europe was doing as well vis a vis China. Mm. So in China, at some point in um, I think February. Um, The government, the central government, I don't know, they called Alibaba. They probably have a direct line and WeChat. And they said, hey, we want you to make contact tracing apps. Mm. And I think they made it and they made the prototype in two days and it was fully operational in two weeks. Wow.
2: Wow.
1: I imagine, you know, a lot of people didn't sleep for that to happen. (laughs) And I, I, I thank them profoundly. And so now we have a... We have a system and of course this is this is also accompanied by a general like in state capacity so the way i see it is now china has like an on and off switch so they've built a lot of testing capacity and that does have to do with tech there were like like car companies um started manufacturing pp like bam there was Mm -hmm. like byd which is i think the biggest car manufacturer and they like in a week, they made the biggest pe- um, mask factory in the world. They just switched their whole production to that.
0: And the hospital, as well, I think, was one of the early kind of examples that we saw. You know, over in Europe, It's one week to build this kind of huge new hospital. that
1: <laughs> yeah, the the ten day ten day hospital thing. They, yeah. they were also streaming it live, which was a message. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but and um, so you know, there were a lot of those things the lockdowns were intense because um, this is not tech related, but the the party has a lot of people like on staff um, mm. that they can mobilize very quickly. So every apartment building, so I live in a, in a building which is part of three buildings um, and say maybe like 5,000 people live in these three buildings because okay, they're like yeah. 25 floors each and blah, blah, blah. And so we have a party representative in our building, um, who is responsible for, he's our community representative, let's say. That's what it's called. Mm. And usually they'll take care of like the wall, like painting and um, I don't know if you want to change the locks and, and things like that. And then all those people were mobilized to make sure that it was, they were monitoring like who's coming in and out of the buildings, right? So very quick mobilization of a a lot of people, like probably millions of people were involved in in making sure that the lockdowns were happening. Mm -hmm. And with all of that came this um, QR code system that we have, which is, it was quite fragmented and there were different like universities that had their own systems, but there is a unified system, at least from a user perspective, where you go on your WeChat or your Alipay, and you pick the city that you want to be in and you, you put your information in like your ID number and whether you've had any symptoms. And then that somehow presumably checks where you've been uh, in the last 14 days. And it gives you green, yellow, red codes. And then you need to show that if you want to enter various buildings. Now (laughs) um, this, was enforced a lot in March and then they stopped enforcing mm. it. And then like in Beijing, when they had the, 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 Xinfadi, the, the new outbreak, um, they just, they just told all those people, all those like community party people, they were like, okay, you've got to start checking for codes again. So they put up the the sort of blocks again at the building yeah. and then everyone was checking for codes. Then, you know, they test everyone, they find the the cases, then this disappears. So they've just created this switch that they can turn on and off. So right now life is very normal.
0: I envy you in that <laughs> position, I suppose. <laughs> um, I, it's kind of you know one of the things that we've, we've talked about a couple of times on this podcast in the past with, especially some of our colleagues who are based in Amsterdam. So um, Tom van Alman and Zeno Koenigs in particular, who do a lot of work at the living labs in Amsterdam, looking at things like AI, crowd monitoring things that we would consider future tech. Um, AI is, I think, a pretty big area that we haven't touched on yet uh, in this discussion. I mean, you know, speaking a lot about the present use of this technology and already how it seems to be a couple of years removed from Europe, what do you see in the future in China? How do you see the use of tech, the proliferation of tech, things such as artificial intelligence developing from this point onwards?
1: So... I you know China is already a very digitalized country and I think it will be more digitalized hmm. and all these apps are very important in in producing data about your habits and what you want and what you don't want um now AI like my problem with AI is that everything is AI and nothing is AI <laughs> yeah. I don't think you know, I don't think China has like some super wow advantage. Actually, by some measures, it's still behind the U.S. Mm. They they are they are using it in a lot of things. I think their next big goal um, is smart manufacturing and IoT and combining that with um, e-commerce technologies, and so you you can also ship things abroad
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and things like that. I think I think perhaps um, with COVID as well. Um, cleaning up agricultural practices will also be a big issue, and IoT and AI have um, a, a big role to play there. I'm sure you read about the pigs that were face scanned for. Uh, I'm not sure why they were doing that, but it got a lot of publicity. Um,
0: if you can, why not? Right? Like t-
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess. I mean, you can you can face scan anything. <laughs> um so uh, yeah i think i think that's something china really needs to do and then i'm i'm really excited to see um what comes out with these five-year plans
2: Mm.
1: because i think that will be a big 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 thing and i really hope that we see a lot of things being used for um sustainable purposes um and i think by the way that this is like one of the unspoken tragedies of our of the current us china problems Mm. because china has is the largest producer of like solar panels in the world right and it's 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 one of the world's leading investors in renewable energies not that it's you know totally like clean energy country or anything but because of its size because they've invested a lot of this they are a very important cog in in the supply chain yeah um and so far, like we haven't seen any problems, but and, and I hope we don't, but it's possible that we will.
0: And what do you see in terms of, um, you know, when you spoke clean energy, then I was also thinking of things like, uh, you know, one of the big solar panel players now in the US is arguably Tesla, who started off as you know this car company, and Europe is also making a lot of strides towards through regulation phasing out things like diesel cars, pushing the electrification. How do you see that movement progressing in China as well? Are we seeing, you know, the kind of car culture is on the decline? Are people looking for electric, looking for sustainable means of transport?
1: So, yeah, definitely. Um, so this this um, the car industry in China is, is very big and very important. And there are a lot of players. Um, some of them allegedly copy Tesla. Uh, definitely, a lot of Tesla fans. Tesla is building its new gigafactory <laughs> here in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the government was really giving a lot of subsidies, and there are a lot of electric cars in China more than you would expect, at least in in big cities. Not so much yeah. in smaller. But really, there are like the average like Uber that I will get into is is probably electric, and I know because I can hear it. Um,
0: uh, not hear it, rather, right? <laughs> yeah, not
1: hear it. Yeah. Well, I think like the. Don't quote me on that, but I think the total is like 25%. No, no, 25% of all um, new energy vehicles, I think, are hydrogen-powered. I don't don't know what the percentage of the total is, but there are a lot. But the the government was giving out a lot of subsidies for a very long time for electric vehicles. Um, And China really does have a car culture, like America-type situation going on because it's very Mm. big. Obviously not in like Shanghai. Um, but then when they tried this summer or spring to uh, reduce some of the subsidies, the market really slowed, presumably also because of COVID. And so they reintroduced them. So I mm-hmm. think from my like very outsider's perspective, because I, I don't really report on this uh, and I don't drive <laughs> um, <laughs> here. Um, I think that that's, like, the big question still. Like, can the industry survive without um, government support? And there was also the case of Neo, which is uh, perhaps the most famous company, uh, which had to be bailed out because they almost went bankrupt. And they were bailed out by a local government. I want to say, like, Henan province, but I'm probably wrong.
0: And they're the ones that build the insanely fast electric car, right? The kind of...
1: Yeah, yeah, presumably, yeah. presumably. <laughs> it's a
0: familiar name.
1: Yeah.
0: Neo. Uh, I think, yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, comparing the futures of of Europe vis-a-vis technology and, and China with regards to technology, it feels like having two completely different conversations. And, you know, as someone who's, I guess, up until recently traveled between the two, uh, I guess my last question to you would be, what what do you think it will take... To get you know Europe in particular on that same playing field or on that same kind of level as china do do you think there's a chance for us to kind of make up that gap and yeah, what would it take
1: um what would it take it would take um it would take a really big restructuring of how people think hmm. uh both like just your average person and um governments um i i don't know if it's really possible to be honest with you not to say there are you know very talented engineers and very smart policymakers in europe um i just don't know if they can do what china does because china like if you want to like china is doing a whole thing it's not just a tech thing it's a Mm -hmm. legal thing and it's an economic thing and it's a um creating a system where like engineers are super valued and and creating a system where like, you know, what Chinese kids go through, like to, to go to university is just absolutely insane. They go to school from like 6am to like 10pm for two years. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's a, it's an entire system that has created this. And I don't think, I I don't think Europe can do this whole thing. I would, I would flip the question and, and say that, like the, the the tech industries that each region has are yeah. proportional to their values, and so for me, um, I, like living in China, as excited I am, I am you know it doesn't necessarily like, and I'm I'm very impressed on a daily basis, but it doesn't necessarily match with my like European preferences.
2: Mm.
1: I think like in China, there's like no unemployment benefits basically. Right. So yeah. that means you gotta have a job. So could you really do that in Europe to push people to go to work? And do you really want to do that in Europe?
0: Yeah, I guess as you mentioned then, like does that kind of align with those those ideals or those uh those values that you that Europe has?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean I love Europe. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah i and and i think like what's interesting is in europe like there there is innovation it's just more like niche mm-hmm. um small but there are like imp- really important companies in in europe um you know a lot of car companies in germany um there's um like imagination technologies which is like a, a semiconductor company in the u k um there there are important important companies um perhaps europe is better for like social innovation that's a very
0: diplomatic (laughs) answer
1: (laughs) yeah i don't know Uh, i don't want to sound too pessimistic i'm sorry
0: no it's it's really it's really interesting to get your perspective obviously someone who's grown up in europe and is now now in china and the perspective i think that we don't get to hear too much um in the west you know as as i said the kind of in, in the introduction a lot of our media coverage or discussion around china is very it is very negative. It's very focused on the negatives, and it's 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 been really interesting uh, to to get your point of view on this, and you get get that real boots on the ground view of what, what life is really like. So yeah, big big thanks, Eliza, for, for taking the time to join us.
1: Thank you so much, Shriek. Thanks for having me, and yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, and if you have any questions, or if there's anything you would like us to investigate, um, you can reach out to me on Twitter at e-grish, E-G-R-E-E-C-H-E-E, or go on technodome.com, and you can read a lot of articles about China. We cover AI, we cover electric vehicles, cybersecurity. We cover e-commerce quite a lot. So, and of course, I do blockchain and fintech. So yeah, you can pretty much find a dish for um, every appetite you may have when it comes to China Tech um, on techno.com. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'll put
0: a link in the episode description as well. <laughs> yeah, I think there's we, clearly there's plenty more to talk about, so I'd love to have you back on sometime as well to do to, to a bit of a follow-up.
1: Yeah, sure. Maybe next time we can... Pick a more focused topic. <laughs> I think we rambled a lot.
0: <laughs> I think that's what our listeners come back for. <laughs> Let's, uh,
1: okay, we'll, rambling. I'm good. We'll, I'm good at we'll that. focus group that one. <laughs> yeah. Great. Thank you so much, Shriek.
0: Uh, and to all of our listeners, um, I, I do hope you enjoyed the, the rambling discussion. Um I hope you learned something new uh, as a result and I do hope we've left you with some food for thought. Um a big thanks once again to Eliza for taking the time. And, of course, yeah, in the meantime, if you have any future ideas, you have questions to Eliza, that we um, we can share the next time we have her on. Uh, do feel free to send them across to podcast at smr.org. And you can now, of course, follow us on your podcast platform of choice. We are on Spotify, iTunes, TuneIn, many, many more. So whichever one takes a fancy. Um, yeah, please do stay safe, stay healthy, stay curious. And I do hope you'll join us again next time.